All right, dear listeners, it has been a while since I cut in before a show with some preliminary message, but it feels a little important to say that we recorded this before the chaos in the Middle East started. Well, I mean, this latest round of chaos, of course. But Chris has been here so often covering so many different topics that if I didn't at least mention this fact, then I could see it seeming weird to some listeners that throughout the whole conversation it wouldn't at least be referenced. But given the nature of every single conversation on every single news channel, podcast, and social media account this week, I'm sure there are some who consider it a blessing to be able to enjoy this conversational time capsule from the faraway time of 15 days ago. The flip side is that I've gotten a lot of messages regarding how I feel about this Gaza-Israel situation, and even a few calls to cover it quickly. And to be honest, I still have a couple of episodes from my pre-Roman's birth stockpile to roll out, and I don't have anything scheduled regarding this conflict on the calendar at this point. But I think we've been well-trained over the last decade by a ton of great guests to parse through propaganda and see that the big machine loves to present us with very dramatic and emotionally triggering thoughts and images to rally us into giving them the green light to increase the violence and fulfill agendas that think tanks have dreamt up a long time ago. And as for Exhibit A on that point, I would say... See if anyone talking about this conflict can go five minutes without some mention of dead babies. So resist that emotional manipulation, consider the larger context, and think really hard before you take things you hear at face value. Much like Ukraine, Russia, there are many different places you can start a long, complex story to frame it in the way that you want, but I will never support collateral damage of any kind or the idea that it's okay for innocent people to die because their government or their military or even their neighbor did something violent. Yet the power players on the global chessboard have always seen us as pawns, and they work hard to find ways at corrupting us into devaluing some innocent lives over others. I think it's important not to let that happen. Despite the fact that I've already seen many people I considered bright minds a week ago who did get COVID right and Ukraine right, for some reason, they got tripped up on this one. But let it be known that I'm already against the next war. And if you wonder how I feel about some future bombing or invasion or whatever, it's most likely some similar version of what I'm saying now. The ones who plan the wars are very rarely the ones who suffer any consequences of them. But I've already gone on too long. I have a feeling this situation won't be over quickly, so I'm sure we will be talking about it down the road. But for now, just enjoy a nice conversation about Chris's latest book, the history and cultural impact of comics, the very real and also symbolic death of the superhero archetype, and a lot of interesting points related to different generations, what it takes to produce quality art, and how 24-7 connectedness has impacted us. With, of course, as to be expected, a lot of high strangeness slash paranormal slash occult slash conspiratorial icing on the cake. I've thought a lot about the points that came up in this one most of the days since, but enough rambling commentary from me. Let's get into it. 
No need for arduous seeking. All you have to do is follow the clues. You start to see this as a simulation, as a type of computerized AI manufactured reality. We are playing like putty into the hands of the manipulators who are just setting us at war with each other. Power of Christ compels you people from the Sunshine State. I'm Greg Carlwood. And in a reality that seems to run on not only cycles, but also symbols, synchronicities, and stories, what better parallel for where we are in the life cycle of the American empire than Hollywood's latest round of bright, flashy, bland, explosion-stacked, juvenile, shallow superhero movies blowing through hundreds of millions of dollars to appeal to nobody and losing hundreds of millions more in a string of truly impressive failures while pretending that everything is business as usual. The proprietors of both being in total denial regarding their grossly overused playbook and their inability to do much more than fail harder. And just to put a fine point on it, reality granted us the fact that the one headlined by twin versions of a they pronoun using psychopathic groomer, The Flash, has become the biggest of the box office bombs. You could almost say the collective unconscious has given up on subtlety in a desperate attempt to be acknowledged by the completely captured denizens of the distracted states of America. And if anyone has taught me to heed reality's warnings, deconstruct the dream logic, listen to Liz Frazier, and recognize the watcher-worshipping elite class's ritual attempts to steer the cosmic ship, it's the ever-great Christopher Loring Knowles one of a small handful of returning guests in the Too Many to Count Club, and I'm happy to be doing this dance again hot on the heels of his latest book, The Spandex Files, The Death, Rebirth, and Redeath of Comic Book Heroes, which punctuates his final farewell to comic books and superheroes, both of which defined his career for a very long time. As you probably know by now, Chris's claim to fame was his first book tackling the underpinning archetypes of the superhero genre, Our Gods Wear Spandex, The Secret History of Comic Book Heroes, and he's written several other great since, like The Secret History of Rock and Roll, the Wild Ride novel that is He Will Live Up in the Sky, and the well-crafted collection of Secret Sun classics that is The Endless American Midnight. He teaches the art and science of synchromistic sleuthing at the Secret Sun Institute for Advanced Synchromysticism via Patreon, and you can find his world revolving around the long-running and info-rich secretsun.blogspot.com. One of my favorite people on this island earth, the OCD-driven dot connector, professor of pattern recognition, and superhero-era obituary writer, Chris, my man, welcome back to THC. Oh, man, it's so great to be back, Greg. Yeah, man, it's always a pleasure. Congrats on the new book. It's a great collection of pieces, old and new. You predicted this rise in superheroes from a pretty obscure counterculture to this phenomenon that basically swallowed up everything. And 
as that ride is clearly over, maybe the Hollywood ride itself is over too. It's like hard to say, but what would you say to kick off this conversation regarding the end of the cultural arc of superheroes and its significance overall, given where we seem to be in the timeline? Well, superheroes were kind of like the last unifying factor that American culture really had. The last water cooler topic that you could name, you know, in this age of fragmentation and micro marketing and social media and all these little bubbles that people live in, superheroes are really the last place that people could sort of go, oh yeah, I saw that movie because everyone went to go see these movies. I don't know how many people know, but pretty much my entire adult life was spent working in these fields. And I had worked for Marvel starting in 1995, maybe. And it just, suddenly ran aground in 2020. It just stopped dead. And the last thing I worked on was the Eternals, which I was really excited about when they announced it. But that was like before we entered into this nightmare realm of identity politics destroying everything. And really, that's what happened in many ways. I think that everything has its natural lifespan. Everything is sort of born, lives, and dies. I think superheroes' death is possibly a little premature. And I think that identity politics has a lot to do with it because with the end of Marvel Phase 3 with Avengers Endgame, they just decided to dive straight into the whole ESG, DEI thing. And the results have been disastrous, unambiguously disastrous. And the thing is, I don't know how many people realize this, but superheroes are really keeping the lights on in Hollywood. And what we're seeing now is that we're seeing a fin de siècle. You know, we're seeing the end of the Hollywood that certainly I grew up with. And probably most of your younger listeners might be familiar with. It's over. I think that last weekend was the lowest, not as far as gross, because the grosses are just don't even, when people talk about the grosses, don't even listen to it. It's all nonsense. Okay. It's all inflated. They play a lot of games with these numbers and stuff. But as far as people's butts in the seats, I think it was the fewest people that have gone to the movies last weekend, and that would be the weekend of the 23rd. I don't know if it would be ever, but pretty close to ever. And we're kind of in terra incognita now. As we speak, the Writers Guild strike is over, which was the second longest strike since 1988. What the studios did is they just took advantage to just flush everything, especially all these kind of identity politics driven things that they had signed up for during the whole George Floyd ritual. So superheroes were really the last great myth. But as I've written and I wrote in Endless American Midnight, myths aren't forever. There's this kind of like Joseph Campbell misapprehension that myths can just go on forever. Myths are very much tied to the cultures that spawn them. And the culture that spawns superheroes, the American culture of the Cold War era, World War II, Cold War, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and so on, that America doesn't exist anymore. And it's never coming back. And it's the same way the way the West, I mean, a lot of people have made this comparison with the Westerns and how the Westerns just kind of died in the 70s, mid-70s or so. And it's because that American culture was gone. You know, the frontier was gone. 
everything was electrified. You know, the interstates had connected the entire, there was no place to project your imagination out in the West. So that's when science fiction took over. I mean, it seems to me that we always need a place to sort of project our imaginations into. And I think the superhero realm was the last place that we could do that collectively. And without that, this is going to sound strange, but I think it's going to help hasten the social disintegration that we're seeing across the board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there might even be an analogy there about connectivity and the loss of myths with the Westerns versus the superhero movies, because you mentioned the highways and the electric connectivity in a physical sense. And now we have this digital connectivity that you know plays a role as well. And you make a good point that comic books and superheroes were a niche counterculture for nerdy boys who felt a bit on the outside. And then they tried to transmute that into a mainstream genre that started off well, but eventually seemed to have disdain for its own core customer. And I feel like that's been done with all the countercultures that I enjoyed growing up, video games, punk music, and even conspiracy stuff. Punk is just dead, but gaming and conspiracy are completely different than they were 20 years ago, completely mainstreamed. And I think there is a sort of angst and frustration that everything is co-opted. It doesn't feel like there are any true countercultures left for the not-so-popular kids to get into and get that kind of charge that you or I might have gotten in, tends to be in isolation, but a charge that makes you feel like you're part of something, even if it's small, it's just gone now. Where does a counterculture youth go at this point? Well, countercultures are really reliant on geography. You know, countercultures are really reliant on people getting together and sort of finding these abandoned spots to sort of coalesce. There was a big movement back say, 10, 15 years ago, where people are trying to gentrify places like Detroit, you know, all these artists are trying to move in and start these sort of new countercultures. It just couldn't deal with the reality, the socioeconomic reality that inhibited that. When I was in the hardcore scene in Boston, it was a bunch of kids who were all deeply, deeply alienated, Gen Xers from messed up families, and we sort of found each other. And we'd find each other because people would put up these little like hand-printed posters on telephone poles or on bulletin boards at record stores or something. But what it offered is like, you know, come here, come to this VFW hall that we've rented up. You know, there's a place called the Media Workshop, which was like an old theater that was on like an eighth floor of like a crappy building in Boston that was converted to a punk rock place. And then there was a place called the Gallery East that during the day was a Kung Fu studio. And then, you know, there are all these places that you go and get together. It's very hard to build a counterculture of any lasting power or even any kind of resonance without that physical proximity. And what people like Giuliani and particularly Bloomberg did say in New York, they shut down all the clubs, they shut down all the big dance halls, they just shut everything down that had any kind of nightlife because they were all doing the bidding of the real estate brokers, right? Because if you have a big dance club in your neighborhood, it's going to drive your property values down, right? So everything sort of moved over to Brooklyn. Well, I mean, that was fine, but Brooklyn is not Manhattan. 
You know, it's not in the center. It's not in the hub. And with any counterculture, as soon as it gets successful, I mean, you know, there's all these hustlers and schemers and everything that are just going to zoom in and try and appropriate it and try and capitalize on it. I mean, that's always happened. It always will. It's inevitable. It can't be stopped. So I don't think that you can avoid that process. What you need to do is just become more resourceful and clever about building something new. How is that going to be built? Where is that going to be built? I don't know. The problem is today also as well is that kids are so beaten down. Young people today, it's so depressing to me, you know, particularly as like Gen X latchkey kid running wild through the streets of Boston all night, you know, just completely out of control, untamed, semi-feral. And kids are so controlled and so hemmed in, they can't express themselves. And I think they're starting to go, you know, a little sideways with all this other stuff that's fed into them. Mm-hmm. And to kind of elaborate on that, and this even touches on that connectivity point, you make a good point later in the book about generational differences and why there's not much deep magical art, let's call it, anymore. You write, a generation that has been so aggressively socialized as the millennials seem absolutely terrified to make its own mark. They seem perfectly content to remain mere consumers and curators since producing something like Watchmen, for example, means you have to step away from the herd and break all the rules, something very, very few of them are willing to risk anymore. And I think that is an excellent point. The great stuff is usually produced by people who are somewhat isolated, somewhat hermit-like, at least during the period of creation. And millennials, and to an even further extent, Gen Z, they just don't ever experience that separateness that seems to be part of that important recipe. What do you think that might mean for the collective psyche of younger generations? Nothing good. I mean, I remember back when my own kids were in daycare, they were in a Montessori school. And I would watch the way that they were socialized. I, you know, I'd watch the way that they were sort of almost, dare I say, institutionalized from a very early age. And what people now call millennials, or they used to call them Gen Y, that didn't really stick too long. I called the daycare generation. And these are kids who were in daycare since they were infants. They had more experience with a Montessori teacher or some daycare provider than they had with their own mother. And I saw that and I'm like, this is going to change the culture. This is going to change people's expectations. And I saw it, ironically, as like, it is hyper-socialization, but I think that there's an agenda behind it to sort of create this collectivist, totalitarian mentality. And today, with a lot of these people called Zoomers, Gen Zers or something, they can't ever be alone. I don't even know how many of them you want to be alone, but you know you can't be alone when you're reachable through TikTok and Instagram and all these social media things. So that's why the bullying just becomes so much more on a crisis level because you can't escape it. Wherever you go, I mean, there's no place to hide anymore. And that, I think, is really important. You know, I've talked a lot about the mystery religions. We've talked a lot about the mysteries of Dionysus and Mithras and Isis. Now, what did they do? They went to a place that nobody knew about, right? And a lot of times it would be underground. And they'd go to certain times of the year and 
that people had something to sort of look forward to and sort of prepare themselves for. What they had is a place to escape. And I think the appeal of superheroes post 9-11 was that, you know, it was offering that kind of escape. And if you can't escape, you can't dream, you can't imagine. And any kind of magic, you know, I talk a lot about magic in the book, in the Spandex Files. I talk a lot about the magic of creativity, which to me is, I think it's the crown of magic. You know what I mean? It's like being able to create things. You know, Alan Moore might run around with his little staff and his snakes and his little wizard hat and his little pretensions and his cape and his wand and so on. But it's like what he does on paper, what he does with all these ideas that he's put forward and, and these memes, you know, like the smiley face meme, Watchmen, Anonymous, you know, the Guy Fox mask. I mean, all these like super, super powerful memes that all came from his imagination. That's a much more powerful form of magic than, I don't know, hocus pocus or anything. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just, yeah. to me, like the joy that you feel in creativity, creating something that something, somebody else has not thought about, somebody else hasn't imagined, somebody else hasn't created, it's just like an incredible rush you get that just cannot be equaled by anything else. And I think that Here's another problem. So not only do we have this hyper-socialization that I think is literally soul-destroying, I'm not using this as hyperbole. I think there's an agenda to destroy young people's souls, to drain their spirits and to destroy their souls. I'm not using this metaphorically. But the other problem is that everything has been done. <laughs> you know what I mean? When I was a kid, there was like, getting back to comics, it was DC, Marvel, Charlton, that nobody read, Harvey, Archie. I mean, just like less than 10 comic book publishers out there. Now there are like hundreds of them. It's like everybody's feeding this. Everybody's trying to like suck a little bit more milk out of that tea and it runs out. Nothing is eternal. Nothing is immortal that we can create, that we can make. It, it all lives and dies. And that's why, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to do this book, why I thought it was really important to do it now is that we are at the end of that process. Like I said, it's a premature process because of the introduction of the identity Pollux virus. But without that, I think the best metaphor that I can draw here is that people who don't dream eventually go insane. Whether it's some sort of organic problems, chemical problem, whatever there is kind of problem that interrupts with that REM cycle, and not only the REM cycle, but the deeper states, the delta waves sleep, they eventually go insane. You know, they get sick easier. And that's what I think is happening to us as a culture. I mean, that's the microcosm. The macrocosm is that we no longer have like real dreams. We have like this fake simulacrum, you know, all this garbage that we're just constantly bombarded with. There's no magical power to it. There's no real magical energy because what we have is that we have a lot of people who become writers, become artists, become this and that and the other thing, not because they have something to say, because it's something they just want to be. You know, they want what they think that lifestyle is. They want to have the accolades and on all this kind of thing. They don't really have anything to say. And I loathe to say this, but in some ways, I don't know what there is left to say. The artists that I'm interested in, you know, I've always talked about David Lynch and Panos Cosmatos, who did 
Beyond the Black Rainbow and Mandy. You know, it's like in order to really break through, people are going to have to just do things that are so new and so different and not be afraid to fail. You know what I'm saying? Like not be afraid to just have absolutely nobody pay attention to you. That's how, you know, it builds back up because we cannot mind these old stories anymore. We cannot mind these old gods. You know, it's the same cycle that you saw, say, like in the fifth century Rome, when all the old temples were abandoned, right? People just didn't believe in this stuff anymore. They just were sick of hearing these stories. And, and that's what helped spread Christianity and later Islam, because it was just new stories, you know, what I mean? <laughs> stories that people hadn't heard that just had been so ingrained into the culture. So I think that the superheroes and people like Disney chairman Bob Iger sort of mentioned this. It's like, yeah, we did too much. Marvel's big mistake was taking the feeling that you're partaking in an event. Everybody wanted to go see Infinity War and Endgame because they wanted to be part of this event. You know, it was like a Super Bowl or something. When it's just, you know, you have all these really, really stupid TV shows like Loki and Scarlet Vision and She-Hulk and all these kind of things. You're just devaluing the currency. You're taking away that feeling of specialness, of novelty. And I think novelty, I think, is sort of the operant word here. You know, without that sense of novelty, it just becomes a chore. It really seems to me that like being into superheroes and comic books these days, when the magic is gone, and again, I'm not using magic as like symbolic. I mean, like the real magic, the real energy, the real magical energy. When that magic is gone, it just becomes a job. You know, you gotta <laughs> it's so taxing to watch all these stupid shows and see all these movies that just get worse and worse every year. Yeah. And one more thing, I, I know you're probably like waiting for me to shut up. But, but one thing I do want to add is that, you know, we've talked a lot about the loss of expertise. I mean, we're going to reach a crisis point within the next five years, civilizationally, I think. But we're seeing this. I mean, one thing that if you've noticed, you know, a lot of sort of the fan feedback and reviews and stuff, particularly, you know, you'd mentioned The Flash. Everybody's like, the special effects in this are terrible. People are like, the special effects in the Ant-Man were terrible. And, you know, we're hearing this more and more. It's like, why are these effects so poor? Well, the problem is, is that nobody wants to just slave away forever doing this work, which is really hard work, really time consuming, and has really bad effects on your health, mental and physical, for the money that Disney or whomever are willing to pay. So we are at a very interesting point because people are still trying to pretend that it's all business as usual, but all the fundamentals point to a much different direction. And my question and the things that I want to address in this book is like, how is that going to affect the culture at large? Yeah, excellent points. And I just wanted to go back to you know, what you were saying about isolation and the connectivity and the idea that there might be an agenda behind this connectivity and where the technology has taken us. Well, magic, paranormal experience, entity encounters, these things tend to happen in rural places, in the middle of the night, in the quiet stillness of our bedrooms. Like, sure, some experiences in magic are group experiences, but it's a small group who are all kind of honed in on trying to have this experience. And 
they basically removed a lot of the conditions from general culture. I had this quote that I wasn't sure I was going to even get to because we've talked about MKUltra a whole lot in previous conversations, but this little paragraph from the book makes the point. You say, one of the mistakes made in researching the MKUltra nexus is misunderstanding what the black magicians of projects like MKUltra were really after, assuming that they were after simple mind control, whose techniques have been known for a very long time, is the first mistake. Television, cults, and the public school system were and are already highly effective mind control techniques. You say, I think what they were really after and could never tell their paymasters in Congress were ways of weaponizing the subtle powers of the mind. I think this kind of mind control, suppressing the potentials of the mind to step outside of the linear boundaries of time and space, is the unspoken driving force behind much of our history and politics. And we've talked about that in many shows about the war on drugs, like any psychedelic that can take you out of baseline consciousness. They didn't want that. They want us locked into consumer culture and just obeying big daddy government. So the idea that there'd be an, an agenda behind this extreme connectivity, well, this is speaking to that, you know, mission accomplished. It's really ultimately about control. So, you know, you just mentioned they didn't want any psychedelic drugs or something that would change baseline consciousness. Well, they did. <laughs> you know, they were doing all these experiments, Operation Midnight Climax, the acid tests, certainly a lot of these countercultural expressions that seemed to have way too much money and way too much reach, you know, <laughs> certainly avenues for that. What they wanted to do was control it. Now what they're doing, the thing that alarms me, and we've probably talked about before, is what I call MKUltra 3.0, where they want to get people into these labs and shoot them up with ketamine or this super long-lasting DMT that they're talking about now. They want to be able to own the playing fields. Now, see, the great thing about comic books and why comic books sort of became the last stage of popular culture, sort of, you know, the Omega stage, right? is that nobody was paying attention to them, particularly when all this creative work was being done. 60s, 70s, 80s, same period from 61 or 63 to 86, when all the ideas that you see making billions of dollars were really created in just that little 25-year time window. I mean, comic books, I mean, I remember when I was, and I talk about this in a book, I was like, I remember like, I had to go to the back of the store but it was great because nobody was paying attention to me. You know, I could read every comic book that was on the stands and I'd be like literally in the very, very back corner, like the most obscure corner of the store that you can imagine. And it was great because I could just read everything. But it's like you need that. And that's like also what I was talking about with Escape. But the great thing about comic books is that it was such a penny-ante business that nobody cared about. The only thing that DC or Marvel cared about were the trademarks and the IP. They didn't care about the comic books. So people could just do whatever they want. So when people can just do whatever they want, that's when interesting things happen. And you haven't been able to do whatever you want in Hollywood for, I don't know, almost 40 years now. You know what I'm saying? It's like you've got to follow these very strict formulas because there's so much money at stake. So what kills the countercultures and these kind of expressions that you're talking about is when money 
big money enters the equation. And like I said, in comic books, it was such a penny ante business. It was just so obscure and just ignored by everyone until really the first Batman movie. And, and then all of a sudden Hollywood's like, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> we can make real money here. But, you know, we forget about it. It was just nothing. And that's what was so great about it. It was almost like a perfect storm. You know, you had the infrastructure of the newsstands and these publishers. So they did have reach, but it was like, that was the junk. That was like the bottom drawer of what they did as corporations. So you had a tremendous amount of latitude, a tremendous amount of creative freedom for artists and so on. And there were a lot of people who took advantage of it. But without that, see, this is what I'm talking about. And what I was trying to sort of allude to in some of the chapters in the book is that people came in when the money, you know, when the cash registers started jangling, say like in 2008 with The Dark Knight and Iron Man, a lot of people started coming in thinking that this worked like a regular business or this worked like a regular part of Hollywood. It didn't follow the same rules. They didn't understand the rules. And then after Occupy Wall Street, when the entire corporate megastructure just, just like in a blind panic and decided that they had to replace, you know, class consciousness with like race consciousness and so on. So you had like a few years. So that's 2011, say 2015. So these people are all freshmen in college when this agenda really kicks in. They graduate in 2015. And then they start going into comic books. They start that's and it's interesting too because 2015, when all these people who were sort of the focus of this program started to graduate, that's when everything just started to go wrong. That's when Marvel decided they had to like race swap all their characters, and everything had to be like some sort of agenda driven feminist whatever. They couldn't just let the characters be the characters. Everything had to be changed. Everything had to be reworked. You couldn't have characters wearing sexy clothing they all had to be wearing like these very dowdy kind of army navy store looking outfits so there was a definite agenda and if you look at the timeline you can really see cause and effect and the cause and effect killed the goose that laid the golden egg it just took another seven years for that process to complete because this is how hollywood works i mean you know movies can be in development for 10 years sometimes even 20 years all your contracts and signs, it just takes a long time. So another four years after this plague, this virus entered into popular culture from these cultural studies programs, and then the process plays it back out up to 2019, when all the things are all under development and all the contracts and so on that were signed before that. And then we have Marvel Phase 4, which is just an absolute disaster. And don't let anybody tell you different, like, because you know, listen, I know whether a movie, a Marvel movie was making money or not, because if it was making money, they would send me an email and say, we need more work. The great example is the first Thor movie. Nobody expected that to be a hit. And then it was a hit. And then like, I kept getting like all these requests to do new pieces and stuff for the movies and so on. And it never happened with Captain Marvel or, you know, Eternals or, oh God. And now it's just over. And actually, I'll tell you, you know, this is a little inside baseball. And I don't know how I many of your listeners might appreciate this, but it's like the division that I worked for, you know, that I freelance for at Marvel was called Consumer Products. 
And they just shut that division entirely down and Disney absorbed it all. So it's like the division that I worked at for 25 years of my life doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like over half my life is just gone. You know what yeah. I mean? Or almost half my life is just flushed down the toilet because that is the reality of corporate culture. Corporate culture is ruthless. And corporate culture, I think, is inherently inimical to creativity of any kind. Yes, I agree. There's always been this idea that capitalism and everything, you know, like the free market and all these kind of ideas that were big in the 80s with Reagan and stuff sort of spurred creativity along and so on. You know, maybe it did at that point. But the worm has turned to such an extent that corporatism is not only antithetical to true creativity, I think it's deliberately destructive mm -hmm. to it. Yeah, you could say it's archonic. You can. Clearly the magic is gone. And let's talk a little bit more about the potent magic that was there and some of these properties. I like this part you write about Hellboy, which also speaks to the larger point about art and magic, where you write, if you held a shotgun to my head and demanded that I prove my theory that pop art based in magical themes has the power to become a form of magic itself, I would ever so gently point the gun barrel towards the floor, amble over to my bookcase, and pull out one of my Mike Magnolia Hellboy collections. Only the Magnolia ones, mind you. No one has been able to reproduce his voice or equal the synergy that can only come when a single creator is riding all of the horses. It's not that the Hellboy stories drawn by other artists aren't very good comics. It's just that they're not magic. And then you go on to say, words and pictures. Funny, the ancient Egyptians certainly seem to understand the power of that alchemical marriage, didn't they? Well, elaborate on this idea for us. What are the ingredients of that recipe for art to become magic? And why is Magnolia's Hellboy such a good example of it? Well, first of all, he's a great artist and he's a great writer and he's a very diligent researcher. I would recommend anyone interested in the kind of things that we talk about to read his Hellboy stories and some of the uh, BPRD collections, which is sort of like a spinoff. His stories are, he just dreams on paper and it has the logic of the dream, but it also has the presence of the dream. His art style is actually rather minimalist, right? I mean, he's a very, very solid draftsman, almost with the kind of like great master types of anatomy skills. But his drawing style itself is very minimalist. But you feel like you're walking through somebody else's dream. And the Hellboy character is almost incidental to it. Like the Hellboy character, you know, it's almost like that becomes you. Because a lot of his stories, it's about the power of quiet and how quiet and eerie can have a much more powerful effect than jump scares and gore and horror and so on like that. I mean, you won't see any of that stuff in his comics. But he's somebody who understands the occult from a researcher's angle. I, I don't believe that he's a practitioner of the occult. But he understands the history. He understands the subtleties and the ambiguities of the occult and these orders, like these occult orders and so on, like the Tula Society and so on. I mean, he understands the inner workings, let's just say. So that's a very strange and interesting combination. We have somebody who is 
very good at what they do, very talented, has a lot of experience drawing just like dumb superhero stories, but also has that interest in these deeper and darker and creepier and more eerie types of topics. And like I said, I mean, he knows his history. I've learned so much about sort of a lot of these weird, obscure corners of the occult from his comics, you know what I'm saying? So I don't even know if people even read that stuff anymore. I mean, that's the other problem. And it's the alchemy of time, too. That book came around at the right time, and there was an audience sort of primed for it. It was never like a huge hit, but it was a very solid hit. And unfortunately, the movies just missed the point entirely. I mean, I'm not a huge Guillermo del Toro fan. I kind of take him or leave him. You know, he did like Pan's Labyrinth and Crimson Peak and a lot of these other movies. Shape um, of Water. Shape of Water. Well, it's interesting too because, you know, all these people sued him over Shape of Water, but like that character in Shape of Water is straight out of, there's a Hellboy character called Abe Sapien. Who's <laughs> that exact character? I always, always was like, oh, that's interesting. Anyhow, uh, <laughs> You know, the Hellboy movies were just awful. It's like somebody who just completely missed the point. And I don't know if that would be the, the Hollywood financier saying, no, bigger, bigger, louder, more explosions, you know, more this, more CGI. Like that whole period in like, I'll say like the early to mid 20, two, 2000s, you know, 2002, 2003 to about 2007, 2008, when the CGI just was like all over. I mean, I remember watching that movie Van Helsing. Did you ever see that movie Van Helsing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember watching that and thinking, like, I hate CGI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, this is just taking me exactly out of the way. And there was so many, like, the Constantine movie, which, again, comes from comics. The Star Wars prequels. The Star Wars prequels were just, oh, my God. Oh, like a little kid playing with, like, the controls on a TV set or something, you know. It's just awful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I always get in trouble when I say stuff like that because there are probably a lot of people out there that, like, that was their first Star Wars movie and that's their favorite movie. You know, that's the thing ah. that really hooked them, you know. But I'll tell you something. I mean, Star Wars, and I write about this in the uh, book as well. So many of the ideas in Star Wars come straight from comic books in, like, the most unsubtle way. You know, I mean, George Lucas just took things wholesale. And it's just like, why does Star Wars not matter anymore? Like, why do these shows and these films just keep failing and failing? Because you could, like I said, you can only squeeze so much blood from that stone. And they've squeezed every last drop of it a long time ago. Right. So I wanted to bring this up. You write a lot about Jack Kirby. And there is a point when we're talking about the flavors of the occult or magic where you compare Jack Kirby's Kirbyan magic versus Crowley's magic, and you talk about the dangers of going over to Crowleyan magic, but what do you see as the difference? How would you compare and contrast those for people who don't really even know what Kirbyan magic might entail? Well, let's get into this. Jack Kirby is a very interesting case, okay? So this is a guy, grew up on the Lower East Side, went to war, not only went to war, but when they found out that he could draw, they decided that he was going to go behind enemy lines and sketch out everything he saw. You know, like he just became like a reconnaissance guy, which is like really dangerous job. He was sent home because 
he had gotten frostbite so bad that they thought they were going to have to amputate his legs. Kind of like, I would say, pretty well into the spectrum. Okay. <laughs> so this is, you know, there are a lot of interesting recipes here. And it was very successful in the comics in the 40s, much less so in the 50s. Kind of got blacklisted from DC, which was like the prestige house. Ended up at Marvel, which was like, you know, that was like people started and ended their careers at Marvel. You know what I mean? It was like pretty much the bottom drawer of the industry at that point in time. I mean, Stan Lee had an office that was like an eight, you know, Marvel Comics for a long time was like an eight by 10 office in the Empire State Building. Just like this little nobody, you know, just fly by night has been company so kirby ends up there because he had some business dealings that got him blacklisted from dc and was incredibly productive but at some point in the mid 60s almost literally overnight his work just went from being like kind of clunky but cool kind of stylish but it was obvious that he was just drawing too many pages a day to everything like overnight, just everything being like cosmic and like everything's like pulsating with energy and everything's like plasma and everything is cosmic and everything is like the gods and space and ancient astronaut. I mean, he was doing ancient astronaut stuff in the late 50s, right? And I wrote about this in the book, but about 30 years ago, a friend of mine who was also a big Kirby fan said to me, said, you know, I think he dropped acid in the 60s. And I was like, what? What are you, crazy? And it's like, no. I mean, he's like, look what happened. It's like, practically overnight, it just goes from like, you know, run-of-the-mill comic book stuff to being like completely psychedelic, tripped-out insanity. And I was like, it took me a long time to sort of wrap my head around. Like, I think it took me about 15 years to sort of even start to entertain that notion. But here's the thing. So this is a guy, GI, GI Bill, VA hospitals, right? I think a guy like him was probably a pretty good candidate for having like major PTSD, right? You know, going behind the lines in wartime Europe, incredibly stressful, incredibly dangerous. There were stories that, I don't know if they were apocryphal, but that he was captured by the Nazis at one point with his crew, his little platoon and they had to sort of fight their way out of it he's the kind of guy that you can imagine just showing up like he was living on Long island at the time just going to some va hospital and saying oh doc you know i just uh can't get these thoughts out of my head you know i had like a really tough time during the war and like jack don't worry about it yeah take this just put this under your tongue a little piece of paper just put it on your tongue just lie down we're gonna turn the lights off maybe put a little nice music on and just relax. And then all of a sudden, it's just like, you know, it's just like complete insanity like you've never seen. I mean, his stuff is like, Kirby's stuff is like more psychedelic than the actual psychedelic artists were. <laughs> and his stuff was more just naturally insane like that. And then he moves to LA and he's living next door to Frank Zappa, <laughs> of all people. And he's hanging out with Frank Zappa. They get together and they smoke cigarettes and shoot the ball i really think that uh somewhere along the line like somebody just slipped him something or maybe a little bit more than just something you know what i mean like maybe 
he was part of this whole experimental process because talk about a perfect candidate for it. But he channeled it all onto the page, right? If people aren't familiar with who we're talking about, I mean, this is the guy who co-created Captain America, Iron Man, Hulk, Thor. He's actually involved in an earlier iteration of Doctor Strange. He was involved in an earlier iteration of Spider-Man. So he was like either the creator or co-creator of all these billion-dollar characters that were basically keeping the lights on in Hollywood for the past 20 years. And he had a hand in it. And he also, like I said before, his ideas were just ransacked wholesale to Star Wars. And if you start to look, like I said, and you can just see it, you can just go online and just see like how like one cover just kind of clunky but stylized superhero stuff. And then the next issue was like So his form of magic that I would say, I mean, it's purely instinctual and you know, whatever might have happened to him, but there's a lot of trauma involved in there. And you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, when I sort of came to this realization about MK Ultra not being what they thought it was that the sort of trauma aspect was very much like shamanic initiation or whatever the terminology is supposed to use for that is now. I don't know, medicine man, holy man, whatever. How they take these kids, basically, teenage boys, and just traumatize the hell out of them, break their brains so they can, quote, unquote, cross into the other world. Well, you know, I mean, Kirby had that happen to him because of his environment and his upbringing, you know, the time that he is in this very violent and crowded and dirty and dangerous neighborhood in the Lower East Side. And then he ends up going to war and being volunteered for the most dangerous job you can imagine. So I think that all these things just sort of broke it open, you know, it, it broke open the skull. And out of that, it's like he became a conduit, a channel for all these, for lack of a better term, gods. Yeah. He had this whole thing with like the new gods and everything like that. I mean, he was obsessed with these, these ideas. And like I said, he had been doing ancient astronaut stories 10 years before Chariots of the Gods. I mean, he was like way ahead of the curve. But I think I'm more and more comfortable. Like it's only taken me 30 years. To become comfortable with the idea that they were probably sitting him down at some VA hospital, you know, in Levittown or something, dosing him up. I'll tell you another story, though. So this is back in the 90s. I was on my couch, and I had a sort of stack of Jack Kirby comics, the Eternals comics, which is this big ancient astronaut series. And I was watching this thing on the Discovery Channel. This is way back in the day when they'd actually show interesting things. I think it was called like Entheogenic Ancient Astronauts or Entheogenic Aliens or something. And it talked about this whole process that these ayahuasca shaman, they'd dose up. And if they were doing artwork, they'd start drawing like figures and then they start drawing like all these little dots and then all these little squiggles. And if you're familiar with Kirby's artwork, dots and squiggles are a big part of it. <laughs> so it's just like, I remember watching that and just being like, I had this just like incredible epiphany. I'm like, holy shit. But like I said, it took me a number of years after that to not think that it was just 
some sort of natural process of the mind, which I don't believe anymore. Yeah, well, I like the use of the word conduit because you called Jack Kirby an astronostic. You mentioned that ancient astronaut theory is a theme in several of his works. And I wanted to bring up this more obscure one that you talk about Devil Dinosaur (laughs) and one of its arcs. It's another comic I'd never heard of. You say this story has ancient parallels in the teachings of the more esoteric Gnostic cults. And it's basically a Gnostic Garden of Eden story. But can you break down this demon tree arc for people as a good case study and seeing the kind of seeding that Kirby did of this stuff from a pretty obscure place to putting it right in his art in a strange way. All right. So towards the end of his career at Marvel, they were asking him to sort of create ideas for like Saturday morning cartoons. And Devil Dinosaur was one of them. And Devil Dinosaur was like the stupidest thing. It was this little ape boy who's friends with this big red dinosaur. They run around, you know, whatever the chronology is. Were apes supposed to coexist with dinosaurs? I don't know. It was just, you know, an excuse to sort of come up with this idea for Saturday morning cartoon. Well, Kirby being Kirby, he did like a couple just random stories. And then he did this arc where these aliens, not only aliens, but robotic aliens. So like AI aliens come down to these saucers and they see these little proto-hominid ape people running around. And they're like, oh, we're going to mess around with them. You know, so it's just like classic Zechariah Sitchin kind of... AAT stuff. And, you know, it's in this comic book that's supposed to be meant for like young kids, right? And then he had the storyline where the spaceship is destroyed, right? With all these robots and this fight with the dinosaurs and so on. And all that's kind of left is this like motherboard almost, like this fragment of the computer, but it has like a voice chip and everything like that. And it speaks and so on. And they call it the demon tree. And the demon tree creates this dome and like captures these eight people in it, right? It's like Adam and Eve, you know, but these other characters, sort of random other eight people running around. And Moon Boy, who is Devil Dinosaur's little buddy, is sort of imprisoned there. And Devil Dinosaur sort of breaks them all out of this dome this garden that they're all being imprisoned by, by the demon tree. So it's really just like straight up Gnostic retelling of Adam and Eve. You know, it descended, so it's like the whole descent of the Archons and so on. This spaceship comes down and it's destroyed, but it leaves this remnant and the remnant is trying to carry on the work and control the course of biology and human development and so on. And they're liberated by the devil. You've heard Gnostic stories that, you know, the serpent, who is never identified as Satan in the actual text itself, which is very interesting, but the serpent was the liberator. So the Sethians and the Ophites, these, you know, particular Gnostic cults had this belief system that the serpent wasn't the devil, but it was actually Christ. The serpent was actually an incarnation of Christ, who came to liberate Adam and Eve from their imprisonment by the Demiurge. Mm -hmm. And you note that in the original text, 
there's a line about the snake being relegated to slithering around on its body, which suggests that there was a prior time when it had arms and legs, much like a dinosaur. So you got the moon child and the snake dinosaur from the Garden of Eden running around. And another part that I liked was you say, we have this Garden of Eden story according to a Gnostic interpretation with the Demiurge being the fragment of a broken alien computer. And just like the Demiurge, the demon tree claims to be omnipotent and all-knowing and imprisons its subjects. Note that even the name demon tree isn't all that far removed from Demiurge, nor is moon boy that far from moon child. And so all these things are right there. Well, you know, Kirby's got a guy, he was very well read and he loved stuff like Fate magazine you know, all the kind of stuff that I sort of loved when I was a kid in the 70s, like UFO magazines, and just weird man, myth and magic, all that kind of stuff. So I'm sure that he probably came across something about the Gnostics in his readings. I don't know if he came across the whole idea of, you know, the serpent as liberator, because as far as I know, those stories were first circulated popularly or you know published widely when elaine pagels published the gnostic gospels and i think that was either in 77 or 78 so that would have been roughly contemporaneous so i mean it could be that he read this book that was just released and decided to lift ideas for his own storylines on it the other problem though is that as i write about and unfortunately i couldn't get as deep as i've gone to in the blog so if you want to sort of get deep into the weeds with this stuff, go to the blog. But Curvy was kind of like, he knew things that he shouldn't have known. Like he saw things coming that he shouldn't have seen coming. Like he did this comic book called OMAC in the 70s that had like virtual reality goggles. I mean, exactly as we know them today. Smart bombs guided by television. You know, all these kind of, you know, non-lethal sprays that these global peace agents would use, sex robots, I mean, all these kind of things that became pretty well circulated almost 20 years after he did this comic, 15, 20 years after that, he was writing about in like the early 70s. But at the same time that he did this, now this is something that I couldn't really do in the book because I kind of have to walk you through it with the panels and stuff and it would just get too crazy with like the images and stuff. But at the same time, he's doing this whole story about virtual reality and everything. He has this character who is just basically Saddam Hussein. And he has this image of like this character who's Saddam Hussein, right? Being pulled out of this bunker kind of thing. And like the image is like uncannily similar to that image that circulated of the uh, US Army pulling Saddam out of his own little underground lair, right? And then he's charged with weapons of mass destruction, all this kind of thing. But at the same time, Kirby is sort of like uncannily anticipating the whole Gulf War thing. And this is even before Saddam Hussein came to power. Some Hussein didn't come to power until 79. Nobody knew who this guy was, right? And, you know, you certainly wouldn't know it if you're like drawing comic books all day in your basement. The other thing, too, is that he did this storyline where like an alien comes down and is like stealing all these artifacts, and a lot of them like artifacts from like Iraq, 
you know, like the Shedu, like those bull men, those winged bull men that they had at the Baghdad Museum. But this all takes place in the context of a war between, you know, it's so Planet of the Apes thing. It's like, but he had like everything was anthropomorphic. So there's these apes who live in the desert. So it's in like Iraq, basically. And then the tigers come over from Washington, D.C. But it isn't like it's the second war because the son who was leading this whole tiger army from base in Washington, D.C. was basically avenging these slice to his father who had the first war. So it's like Bush. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you're like, what the hell? Damn. <laughs> it's, you know, and the thing is that there's a lot of this stuff in Kirby. I mean, the most famous example and what I put in the book is like the face on Mars that he drew, I think in like 57 and 58, and then it sat in a drawer for like almost 10 years and then was published, I think, in the mid-60s. It's called The Face on Mars, and it doesn't look all, you know, I mean, whatever discussion you want to have on that, that's a whole other issue. But he was sort of anticipating that. And at the same time he drew those stories, he also did a story that was like the monolith, like the whole thing in Clavius, and the monolith in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Now, you can say, well, maybe Kubrick or Clark had seen the story. Well, the problem is, is that their movie was already well into production by the time this thing was even published. It was drawn, again, in the late 50s and published in the mid-60s. So Kirby just had this awareness. The Kirby conduit. <laughs> yeah, he knew he was like getting signals from somewhere because he also did a story around the same time he did those Face on Mars stories that was very much like Jack Parsons and Marjorie Cameron. That was like really weird too. And this is like... Years before the whole Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard and all that stuff was even known, was even talked about. So he had this weird sense, like this prophetic sense. The only problem was that, like I said, I think he was pretty deep into the spectrum and I, I don't think he could really organize a lot of this coherently. But, you know, I'll just say the interesting thing when you talk about astrology is that his birthday was the day before. Elizabeth Frazier's birth. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we run out of time, I wanted to at least fold in some of your Barbenheimer post because it is a real whopper. And I too saw that the guy (laughs) who wrote the book about Mattel many years ago had the last name Oppenheimer. And it's like, what? That is so weird. That's pretty eerie, but the connections go a lot deeper. In fact, they go all the way back to 1945, actually, right? Well, the whole Barbie thing, I was really kind of shocked because Barbie is is a whore. (laughs) (laughs) Because Barbie, as we know it, is an exact copy of what was called Build Lily, this German doll that was based on a comic strip about a, a whore, about a prostitute. And it sort of became like, kind of like a sex toy. Like these little dolls were like, you know, you'd take them out at parties because they were anatomically correct and so on. So this this woman from Mattel goes on vacation to Europe and comes across one of these things and just like, oh, I'll market these whore dolls to children. As you do. Yeah, as you do. But it's all that post-war, that immediate post-war period that so many people have talked about with like 
you know, all the bomb testing and the national, you know, the UFOs, <laughs> the National Security Act and Roswell and all this kind of crazy stuff, right? But there's also Barbalo from Gnostic <laughs> mythology, let's just say, and the connections. I mean, like the whole, when I dug into that stuff, like the whole Barbalo stuff, you know, because it's sex and death, isn't it? Right? It's Barbie with the big bazongas back in her early incarnation, based, not even based, but just an exact duplicate, an exact copy of this doll based on this comic strip of a prostitute. You know, it's so weird when you dig into so many things that we think are wholesome and then you realize that they're not. I mean, just recently, on Twitter, I had to school Linda Carter again, which was painful to me because, you know, being of my age and time, I she was just a sex goddess to me. But Wonder Woman was created by like a really messed up guy who, of course, was a psychological warfare instructor for the army. And he was very open about his bondage and masochism and all these kind of weird things, which all that stuff I hate. But it when you look at those old Wonder Woman comics, it's so creepy and uncomfortable. A lot of stuff with like kids and like babies and just like weird, you know, just like, like this was one cartoon where like Wonder Woman becomes like a little eight-year-old girl, but she's still like coming on to Steve Trevor, like sexually and stuff. And it's just like, oh God, you know where this is coming from. You know where this is now we understand that back then we didn't understand that kind of thing and we understand it now we understand how just sick and weird all the shit is and i think that again it's the same thing with barbie it's like so many things that we were told were wholesome and, and wonderful are not and you wonder if because these things emerge from these places emerge from these minds these psyches these souls if some of that doesn't carry over into the culture at large, I mean, I would argue that it does. I mean, just in my life, you know, I can't believe how much the culture has changed. You know, I'm not saying that I'm outraged by all of it, because I think that people were kind of too uptight in many ways. You know, certainly when I was growing up, certainly the older generations were very uptight, and they were also very unhappy. I mean, that's the thing that I think a lot of people have sort of pine for this lost golden age don't understand like how unhappy people were yeah they had a job for life but they hated it you know what i mean and watching all this like really inert and bland and boring shit on television when you came home from work you know it wasn't like we were you know the serpent entered paradise and we all fell it's a lot more complicated than that but at the same time, it's like we have to be aware of something like Wonder Woman. But, you know, all the superheroes in general, getting back to the Spandex Files, I mean, I didn't really go into this in the book because I didn't think it was like an appropriate venue, but there is so much pedo shit in old comic books. Like, you would not believe. I mean, it is like, you know, Batman and Robin sleeping in the same bed together and stuff. And those kid sidekicks, man, forget about it. That shit is like really sus. But, you know, it was ingrained in the culture. We just didn't recognize it. I remember when I, I was doing something for the, the Frasier blogs, and I, for some reason I was thinking about Flipper. Have you ever gone back and watched Flipper from the 60s? It is just basically nambler porn. It's really 
weird and sick and strange. It's like little boys running around with like, you know, these little tiny bathing suits and this big phallic symbol looking dolphin. <laughs> it's like the weirdest. It's like what this there couldn't be any women or girls in the show. It had to just be like a man running around with little boys who were in a state of undress all the time. Yeah. Going back to Barbie and the sex doll thing, again, nothing is as wholesome as it appears on the surface. But I brought up 1945 because the connections between Barbie and Oppenheimer, they go a lot deeper than just that book of the guy who wrote the Mattel biopic. But you mentioned that in 1945, that is when Mattel was created by Harold Matson and the husband and wife duo of Elliot and Ruth Handler. Interesting name. And then also the Nag Hammadi Library was found that year. Maybe resonant or relevant, maybe not. But also the Trinity Tests, the first dropping of the atomic bomb, the first major test of such a thing was in 1945, the same year Mattel was founded. And then all these years later, in 2023, it's like this big meme phenomenon and maybe the last big box office weekend. Who knows? It might have been like the last little pop from uh, Hollywood because I don't see any other movies on the horizon that seem interesting. But also Lily, I mean, very close to Lilith, that Lily is the foundational archetype of Barbie. And then, of course, who played Barbie? Margot Robbie. And then what was Margot Robbie in? Basically around the same time, a movie called Babylon about the debauchery of Hollywood. And the poster is her dancing in a red dress. The Scarlet, Scarlet Woman. Yeah. I mean, again, is this too precise for human hands? Is this some orchestrated meme generation, some kind of subtextual magic? It's hard to say, but it's the dream logic bleeding over, perhaps. I think it's sorcery. I don't think a bunch of people got together and said, well, let's have Barbie and Oppenheimer come out at the same time and we'll sort of orchestrate this whole thing. I don't know if that's the case sort of at this end of the cycle, but certainly during the late 40s in that post-World War II, early Cold War era, there were sorcerers at work. There were. I mean, you know, the splitting of the atom. I mean, all these kind of tests, the bikini, you had Operation Crossroads, Crossroads, right? Where you go to make deals with demons, right? And then what emerges concurrently is this French designer comes over with this very revealing bikini and, you know, bikini and Barbie, right? I mean, you can't separate those two, right? That was a huge part of her appeal, right? So I think that a lot of things were sort of set in motion and maybe not on a coordinated or strategic fashion. But I think, let's just face it, I mean, let's just call it what it is. There were a lot of sorcerers who were feeding a lot of this stuff into the culture. I mean, UFO thing shortly afterwards, right? You know my feelings about Roswell, that it was just basically a giant sorceress working. I think there were a lot of these workings being done, and they changed the culture, they changed the shape and the arc of history, and certainly popular culture, right, over the next, I guess that would be 75 years now. And now it's reaching its end. It's all playing itself out. And of course, the superheroes, you got to put in the, the middle there because they're all part of this, right? The superheroes and Barbie and 
rock and roll and the bomb and duck and cover. I mean, all this kind of stuff is influencing what had been the largest generation of new human beings that the earth had ever seen, the baby boom generation, right? I mean, 76 million kids were born, you know, when all this stuff is being seeded into the culture. Do you, you see them going mm-hmm. with that? And now they're dying out. And now we're at the end of that whole cycle, right? So we're at a what they call like an axial point in history, when new things start to emerge, when old things die and new things start to emerge. And that's why, you know, I've been thinking a lot about younger people and younger men. And, you know, every young man sort of wants to make his mark, whether they acknowledge it or not. I mean, you know, somewhere in the back of their mind, they want to raise a family and so on. You know, they want to basically plant seeds, you know, you're part of this whole process, this human endeavor, and you want to plant your flag, plant your seeds. But I'm kind of a, of the feeling that it's like we've got to do away. There's this old bad energy, you know, like woke is a big part of it. Because people think woke is this like what they call the successor ideology. Woke is, is a rear guard action on behalf of the old dying generation. It's their attempt to keep their legacy alive in some ways. Because as we know, I mean, woke all comes from the CIA and from all these corporate think tanks and these foundations, Ford Foundation and Rockefeller and MacArthur. I mean, all these big, rich old families. It's really them trying to manipulate the forces of history to their own advantage. What it ultimately boils down to is the rich using the poor to keep the climbers off the ladder. Because that's really what it boils down to in the real world, in real time. So it is the end of the cycle. So if I was a young man today, I don't know if I'd try to plant seeds so much as I would try and like be part of the process where you're clearing away all the deadwood. You can't plant seeds in like a polluted and barren field. And there needs to be a renewal of all these natural energies that are part of nature, which is entirely cyclical. So we're in a historical cycle. And younger people today, I don't envy them, but I think that they would have much more pleasant and fulfilling lives if they understood their part in this grand theatrical production. Their part is to clear away the deadwood, right? This old boomer thinking, all this corporate nonsense, all these corporate ideas that have killed all these viable cultures. You know, when you talk about how these countercultures are killed, they're all killed by corporations, ultimately. You know, these rapacious corporations are always the agents of their destruction. This stuff all needs to be cleared away. I don't know what shape or form that's going to take. I don't know how long that's going to take. It might take, 10, 15, 20 years. I don't know. That's not my part in the production. I've sort of done my part. And now it's up to people to realize that what is going on now with like the Great Reset and all this other stuff is basically a bunch of old men trying to have some semblance of their old science fiction fantasies come to fruition. Transhumanism, AI, robotics, I mean, all the stuff, whatever real world applications it has, 
it all eventually comes from science fiction, as well as these whole ideas of like 15 minute cities and renewable energy and, and all this kind of stuff. It seems to me that you have like, you know, Biden is 80, Nancy Pelosi's 82, Klaus Schwab, Kissinger's what, almost 100. You know what I mean? It's like we have this gerontocracy, these old people who all were raised on this utopian ideal of global community and redemption through science and all these kind of things that we all now know were lies or at best myths, right? But they're not going to let go of it. They want to take the rest of us down to hell with them. You know what I mean? Because you got to understand how powerful, you know, particularly in that post-war period, you know, this whole myths of the great human community and the United Nations and better living through science and all these kind of things. You got to understand that this was a religious epiphany for these people. This was their religion, this whole idea of rationalism. And even though simultaneously, most of them are Masonic sorcerers, right? Or Kabbalistic sorcerers or whatever, right? They know they're dying. They know their time has come and gone, really. And they're just hanging on past their due dates. So it was like this last gas thing, you know, with the central banking currencies and pretty much biological control through mRNA and all these kind of manipulations. It all comes from science fiction. Right. Which is steeped in the occult. You know, a lot of the early science fiction comes from there. And with terms like the Great Reset, it is almost like they're trying to hijack that process you described that is supposed to be for the younger generations of clearing out the Deadwood. That's exactly what I'm saying. They're like, no, we're going to do this too. We made the mess and we're going to clean it up and we're going to make the next next mess. And it's like, no, your, your time is up, actually. You know, you may be in a position of power, but you will not be here in 10 years. So maybe just go retire to Petto Island and, and let the next generation get to work. Hopefully not five years, but you know, <laughs> that's the whole thing that they've said about the boomers, right? They never want to let go of the reins and hand them off to someone else. And the problem is they didn't do what previous generations have done and sort of mentor and train people to take their place because right. they didn't want their place being taken. Yeah. Now they're just the landlords for all the 30-somethings that can't afford the rent and there is no passing of the torch. It's despicable. When I was a kid, it's like you turn 65 and you retire. You know, yeah, period. Yeah. You know, it's like Trump is what, 74? You know, it's like these people are just sticking around way past their sell by day. <laughs> and it's just weighing everything down. And I just read this statistic today about just the phenomenal rise in over 65s. Now, here's the thing I mean, I think that because of the camera and television, we became a very ageist society. It used to be that older people were sort of recognized for their wisdom and their experience, right? And the baby bro was like, no, 70 is the new 40. (laughs) It's like, they can never let go of them being the new kids on the block, the young upstarts, the young Turks. So we are just weighed down as a culture, as a society, as a planet by this old, dead, useless energy. And it has to be cleared away. And this is what I talk about in the final 
chapter of the, of the spandex files. It's time to put these toys away. Okay? It's time for us to grow up and have adult conversations and tell each other stories about being adults and being responsible, not these childish fantasies that you know, have dominated the culture for the past 20 years at least. You know, a lot of it comes from my generation. So we were latchkey kids. We were neglected, you know, I mean, the whole nine yards. I got the whole trip, right? I got one from every column, right? And, you know, when you're a kid, you know, you're talking about the TV was your best friend. And it's like, when we were kids, it's like, this is all we had. You, you sort of cling to that. You don't want to let go to it. And that has to just stop. People have to stop going on these stupid movies because they're all the same. And they're just getting worse. Right. Well, the numbers seem to suggest they are stopping. I hope so. But we need to get back into like more sophisticated, more mature kinds of stories and ideas and thoughts and concepts. You know, because we've allowed the term I use in the book is that real life supervillains use the superheroes to take over the world. And I think that's kind of true. You know, I mean, it's like millennials particularly were infantilized up until their late 30s and 40s. The oldest millennials are now in their early 40s, right? They were immersed in this, you know, Harry Potter and Twilight and Marvel superheroes and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like eating nothing but dessert for your entire diet. It's the same exact idea. They go to Disneyland and they don't have any kids. Yes. <laughs> Listen, I don't like General Buller bashing because we're all hostage to our circumstances of time and place. But, you know, as a Gen Xer, believe me, we're the ones who got the brunt of it because the boomers hated us and let us know every day how much they hated us and like saw us as direct competition. We've been written out of history. <laughs> you know, an entire generation of people have been written out. Of, we don't even exist anymore. Like, literally. It's almost become a meme, like how we, we've been written out of history. But a lot of that was the bummers. It's like, we were the kid brothers. A lot of us were kid brothers or bummers. And it's just like, we're just seen as snot-nosed punks who could never do anything right. And unfortunately, all these accidents of history, I think, conspired against certainly millennials. I don't bash millennials in the same way other people do. I know like the whole hipster thing was so toxic and horrific. You know, it just destroyed a lot of valuable ideas and concepts in our culture. But you're a millennial. I mean, you grew up in like the glory days of human culture. I mean, 90s, it's like consumer culture. Was there ever a time when people were richer and more comfortable and but the problem is, is that this little fluke of history that we all enjoyed for 10 or so years was not part of the permanent human condition. And I think a lot of people raised in that environment and during those times expected to be. Yeah, I think that's true. And the 90s do feel special. You know, the decade right before 9-11 took us into Patriot Act, surveillance state territory, and an endless war, and then the internet hijacked creativity and the connectivity destroyed the value of isolation to bring it full circle. And yeah, that's the situation we're in now. But 
What are you going to do about it? Well, what you're going to do is realize your part. Understand who you are and realize that you're a part of something bigger than yourself. Okay? You're part of a bigger game. You know, you're a player on a bigger field. It's not all about you. It's not all about what you want or what you need. It's also about your part to play in this process. Yeah. I hope a lot of people listening feel inspired by that. I certainly do. I get renewed by our conversations because I start thinking about my own role in this and the trajectory of what I want to do with this platform that I built. And I agree. It's important to have more mature conversations. The joke is that people don't stick around for a two-hour conversation anymore, especially without video. You know, in this age, and it's like, well, maybe that's the barrier of entry that is necessary to create some kind of digital counterculture that isn't really absorbed by the big machine. And maybe there's value in that. And hopefully other people realize it. I think it's happening. I think people are doing it. We just don't know about it. But I think regaining our attention spans, you know, it's a good first step to take. Like today, I was just thinking about like, why do I have my phone next to my bed? Because it's too much of a temptation to just, oh, let me just look this up. Oh, I'll check my email. And then all of a sudden, you're just looking up completely irrelevant sports statistics. <laughs> it's like, because the algorithms are just very good at catching where your mind is going to wander to. Amen. So, you know, just I guess in closing, you know, like my career kind of started with our gods with spandex, right? And now that part of it, I'm putting an end to. I think it's good to say goodbye to things. It's good to let things go. I think it's a healthy part of your development, you know, not only emotionally, but spiritually. I'm not clinging to old forms, you know, not clinging to old fantasies, no matter how powerful or how comforting they were. Because the security blanket just becomes a noose as far as I'm concerned. Well said. Wise words. And I could do it all day, but speaking of adult things, I do hear the family piling in the front door. They give me the two hours of silence. You know, that's what I get. Then I got to go do the adult thing. But you are one of the greats. It's always a pleasure. I can't thank you enough for all the previous interviews and the time you've given me and the audience here. And your work is great. I really enjoyed the latest book as much as the previous entries. And is there anything else we should leave the people with? Maybe what you got in the works at the uh, old Institute? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. A little bird told me that somebody might be working on a handbook, sort of a how-to synchromysticize your own life. Wow. Just going to just put that out there. I've been spending a lot of time sort of thinking about like, why do I do what I'm doing and what purpose does it serve? And like, I'm starting to have some good solid answers that I feel are sort of driving the next phase of the work that I do. It's exciting. And, you know, I've been talking about it at the Patreon and a lot of people are excited about it. So I'm mean, just going to kind of, that's the path I want to take. You know? Yeah. I really think there's uh, some kind of subtle, zenness to you now compared to maybe previous times we've spoken and it's great to see 
you seem uh, quite happy in your role at this point. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, keep fighting the good fight. Always a pleasure and take care. Thank you, Greg. Yes, the return of the always entertaining Christopher Loring Knowles, hot on the heels of a great new book. My hard copy just arrived yesterday. Thank you, Chris. And I really did have pretty lengthy sections of my outline regarding his breakdown of the symbolism of Dark City and the Fifth Element, and even a comic called Night Force, which I hadn't heard about, but Chris made me want to read it. But that material can be read in his book, and some of those pieces are right from the blog anyway, so search the terms and dive in if you want a little bit more. And speaking of wanting more, if you only heard the free first hour, there's a ton of great material you missed out on. Become a Plus member right there in your show notes. The first thing you see are two links, one to join through the THC website where you can log in and rate episodes as well as get engaged in the deeper conversation with other Plus members. By far the most active conversations anywhere regarding new THC episodes. And you can check out the stuff on the bonus content page. But if you don't want to use my website, you can also take the PlusFeed URL and put it in most of the major podcasting apps and keep listening through the same ways you hear the free show. And the second link you see is to sign up through Patreon. It's separate, but it also contains the full Plus Show archive, the number one thing people care about. And because they're a Spotify partner, it also offers you a quick and easy way to listen to THC Plus through Spotify if that's your thing. For years, people have said to me that the hesitancy to get plus is not really about the money. It's about not wanting to change the way they listen. And I understand you don't have to. So rest easy, dive in and enjoy. I probably could have communicated these things better to you over the years. But honestly, the sales pitch portion of what I do is not my favorite part. But anyway, a lot of this plus show was about the alchemy of time some 80s cartoon properties, the question of if Kirby was in the OSS like Richard Hoagland suggested when he was here. We talked about Kirby and Philip K. Dick. And I think Chris's Barbenheimer synchronicity breakdown is in the plus show. I don't really know. I haven't made the cut yet, and that was the last thing we talked about. So sometimes those things get spliced into the free show. I'll just have to see where the best natural cut is but I did like that part a lot. Anyway, you know how it works around here. But I do agree with Chris that connectivity is destroying art and that countercultures are pretty much all co-opted. He made some good points about the regionality of them. I said isolation because as an only child, I was getting into things like punk music and video games and outside the mainstream stuff largely by myself. A sense of community would have been great, actually, but. I get his point about going to local shows and local hangouts, finding the ones you vibe with based on what their clothing choices project and what music they're listening to and what patches are on their beat-up Jansport backpack. And with the rise of the globally connected world, we used to talk about how it's easier now to arrange meetups in smaller groups based on more niche interests. But it doesn't seem like that's how most people or younger people really use these tools. I try to offer that with the THC meetup calendar system, 
But even that gets used less than I originally expected based on the size of the audience. But even though we didn't really talk about Dark City, it did remind me of a very cringe story from my younger years, if you're interested. But I discovered Dark City early because I was a fan of The Crow, and both were directed by Alex Proyas. And when I was a freshman in high school, I found myself dating this girl that I thought was very much out of my league on several levels, including her being a junior. So already I'm pretty out of my depth, but we vibed a lot on the same content and counterculture stuff. In fact, I think what got me on her radar was that I actually dressed as the crow for Halloween. So as we know, school starts in the fall. Halloween is in October. It's all happening so fast. And by the time we got around to Valentine's Day, I, of course, had no money, no relationship experience, no older brother to show me the reins. And for my first real girlfriend on my first real Valentine's Day, I got her a crow poster from Hot Topic. I hadn't thought about that in a long time. And maybe there was like a stuffed animal with it or something. But in retrospect, that is just such a ridiculous gift to give a girlfriend. Like, I guess I expected her to hang it up or even want it. And most likely, if I reverse engineered it, that was probably the beginning of the end for me and her. I think I took the crow thing too far in a desperate attempt to connect with a female. So that's embarrassing and not super relevant, except that this show and Chris's book had me dusting off the mental cobwebs of my youth. And sadly, that was one memory that came up. But hey, I enjoyed all this. Chris knows about a lot of things. But comics are very high on that list. I hope that even if you never liked comics, you can appreciate them as a lens in which to see the bigger ideas and the seeding of a ton of THC themes. It was fun. Thanks, Chris. Check out what he's doing with the Secret Sun Institute on Patreon because his OCD means that he churns out a lot of really deep stuff and a ton of film breakdowns that are just top-notch. And with that said, let's just scope out the meetup calendar and call it in. All right, well, the day of multiple events, I think four or five, that is October 14th. That's today. So you probably already know if you're going to one of those. But they would be in Edgewater, Colorado, Rappingers Falls, New York, Lansing, Michigan, or Huntington, Indiana. Check the calendar for more details. October 18th, the PlayStation Virtual Meetup. October 20th, the Cincinnati, Ohio meetup. And we'll throw in November 3rd, the High Springs, Florida, High Springs Brewery meetup. Now that I think of it, maybe there's so many October 14th events because it's the eclipse today. Wow, did that slip my mind? But yes, go watch it with some friends. In fact, the Edgewater, Colorado one does say eclipse meetup right there. So there you have it. But either way... I guess I should wrap this up so I can check it out myself. I think it's going on right now. But let's rebuild those local subcultures based on weird, out-of-the-box interests. They're needed now more than ever. And hopefully this episode setting sail during such an eclipse gives it that little extra oomph to reach more people and bring in more plus signups. That's my little intention for the day, but... The people that really know about these things tend to say that magic doesn't work when you talk about it and that eclipses are usually negative omens. 
But I guess in true going against the grain fashion, let's do it anyway and just hope that my whole world doesn't fall apart. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Chris and thanks again to Damn My Eyes for my favorite of the new intro submissions. Your move, counterculture co-opters, millennial manipulators, and agents of the crumbling entertainment empire. Your fucking move. From space it was falling, its light started calling, it's making crop circles again. Just as I was looking up, it showed me all the hidden stuff, and now I'm all enlightened and zen. Up the masses is hard. Silver ships are coming yard by yard. Now I'm not asleep. Don't obey the elite. Gotta be to the head. Now I start to wonder. Now we're not the sheep that they bred us to be. Gotta be to the head. Now we start to wonder. Now we start to wonder. Since the visitors set me straight I encourage you to go When you see the saucers glow One by one we'll all end up awake Enlightening the masses is hard Silver ships are coming yard by yard Now we're not asleep Don't obey the elite Got a beam to the head you wonder, no, we're not the sheep that they bred us to be. Got a beam to the head. Now we start to wonder. Now we start to wonder. Now we start to wonder. Just as the system starts to die Cabals hate it when we make it So they'll break it and next round they'll erase it It's a big loop, what can we do? Still it's time we had another Cause we're not the sheep that they bred us to be Got a beam to the head Now we start to wonder, now we're not asleep we got THC and a beam to the head. Now we start to wonder. Now we start to wonder. Now we start to wonder. Now we start to wonder again. Now we start to wonder.